turn to the book of 1 Samuel. And once again, uh, I hope that we're beginning to see the continuity here in the Old Testament. From the first five books of the Old Testament, walking us right into the historical books, which is where we're at. We're, we've moved out of the Pentateuch or the law, and now we're in the historical books of the Old Testament. And I hope that you can see that thus far, now this will change the deeper we go into the Old Testament, but so far there's been a great deal of continuity between the books and the sections that we've been working through. For instance, we have the, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament where Moses uh, leads the people of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, and then eventually they reach just the edge of the Promised Land, and then we have the death of Moses, and from there we step right into Joshua's time as leader, and it's just like it, they're just dovetailed together. Each book ends, and the next one picks up right where it ends. So we have Joshua and the conquest of the Promised Land, and the people of Israel are conquering the Promised Land, and then we go from that, where we know that they didn't complete the job. Remember, they didn't get it done. They didn't drive out all the people, and so we went right from that to the judges, and we have the judges and the time period, that 350-year time period, roughly, where the people of Israel are in that cycle of rebellion against God and judgment from God, and then God will send a judge in, and he will help through the judge to redeem his people or to rescue his people, and we have that whole cycle going all the way through the the book of Judges, and then that picks us right up into the book of 1 Samuel, and we're not even quite done with the judges. In fact, the, the final judges of Israel are not found at the end of the book of Judges. They're found in the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel and throughout 1 Samuel. And so we have uh, the, the familiar story of Samuel. How many of you know the story of Samuel a little bit at least? I mean, it's a pretty familiar story. So we pick up in the beginning. I'm going to do a lot of summarizing and then we'll slow down once we get to about chapter 7, and we'll start reading some verses together. But I'm just going to try to get us to where we're going so far. So we have this final judge of Israel whose name is Samuel, and he's raised up, and he comes uh, into or onto the scene first because his mother is found praying that she would have a baby. You remember Hannah, and she's there, she's gone to the um, with her husband on a, on a journey, and she's there, and she's praying, and she's praying with such agony over being barren and not being able to have children that Eli, the priest, looks over and sees her, and do you remember his reaction to her? He thinks she's drunk because she's just having such a fit of agony, and so she's not drunk, of course. What she's doing is she's praying and pleading with God to, to give her a son, and she says, God, if you will give me a son, just give me a son, then I will give my son to you for service. As long as he lives, he'll belong to you. And so, of course, God answers that prayer and gives Hannah a son. And if we read on through the opening chapters of the book of 1 Samuel, we find out that she holds on to the child until he's weaned, and then she does exactly what she says that she's going to do. And she takes him back to Eli and presents him to Eli and says, this is the child that I prayed for. I was the one who was praying in your presence. Here's the child, and now I'm giving him to the Lord for his whole life. And so Samuel uh, goes to live with Eli, and then uh, we have Eli and Samuel and the call of Samuel. The call of Samuel is a tremendous story in the Old Testament, and one that, again, we're probably at least somewhat familiar with. But but here's Samuel, and he's been living with Eli, and Eli's old, and, 
And one night, he's laying in bed, and I had something happen to me the other morning that was uh, similar to this, but similar, but nothing like it. You know, sort of like this, but nothing like this, in that I woke up very early to go somewhere, and, and I was leaving the house about 5.30, and I started hearing voices in my house at 5.30. And I thought, I stopped, I listened, I didn't hear it again, and then I took another step, and I heard it again. <laughs> And I stopped and listened, but it, uh, it wasn't the Lord. I hate to disappoint you. It was Caitlin talking to her dog at 5.30 in the morning in the basement. But Samuel's asleep one night, and, and he's there, and, and he hears someone call his name. And he gets up, he runs to Eli and says, you called. And Eli says, I didn't call you. And he says, go back and lay down. He does it again. He goes to Eli and says, you called. He says, I didn't call you. And he goes back again, and Eli finally says, well, it's probably the Lord. Go lay down, and, and if, if it happens again, it's the Lord speaking to you, and it happens again, and, and, and Samuel answers and says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, and, and God speaks to him and announces to Samuel the judgment that he had promised on Eli in his house. Now it's coming about. Now it's going to actually happen. So Samuel gets up the next morning. Imagine the scene. He gets up the next morning, been living with Eli in his house, probably a father figure to him. And Eli says, so Samuel, what did God say to you? And Samuel said, uh, not, not, nothing really, you know, nothing, nothing worth talking about. He doesn't want to tell him. Samuel, what did he say? Tell me what he said. Well, I'd rather not say. And then he says, okay, then Samuel, whatever God said would happen, let it happen to you if you don't tell me. Samuel says, all right, I'll tell you. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's a, just a great scene. And he tells him, and of course, Eli responds by saying, whatever the Lord has said, that comes to pass. And so then we have in, in chapter 4, we have this battle with the Philistines. And so now things are sort of coming to a head again. And there's a big battle where Israel goes out to fight with the Philistines. And, and you know what happens any time that the Israelites find themselves in rebellion against God or any time the leadership of Israel is corrupt, God has told them what would happen. What? That he'll not fight for them, he'll fight against them. And so they go out to the Philistines and they go out to fight. And it's interesting because the Philistines are scared initially. They're frightened. The Ark of the Covenant is brought out. They believe that if they bring the Ark out, that they'll win the battle. And they bring the Ark out and the Philistines are are frightened, but nevertheless, they go out to fight, and they win. They win, and they kill Eli's sons, his two sons, and then they do what nobody imagined would ever happen. They take possession of the Ark of the Covenant, and they carry it off. And so this person runs back from the battle, and Eli's old and blind, and he's sitting there waiting to hear, waiting to get word, and says, they come back, and Eli says, give me word what's happened out there. And he says, well, your son's are dead, the Philistines routed us, they killed your sons, and they took the Ark of the Covenant. And at hearing that, it says that Eli fell backwards, broke his neck, and died. And so all of this, is everything that God has said would come to pass, has come to pass. His sons are dead, the Ark is gone, Eli himself has died. And then if you look in chapter 4, Verse 19, and this is, this is important, important moment. Chapter 4, let me get there. Verse 19. 
So now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. This is Eli's daughter-in-law. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she, she bowed and gave birth for her pains came upon her. In other words, she got in such agony, she went into labor. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, so she, just read between the lines what's happening here. She goes into sudden labor and she, she's going to die as a result of her childbirth. And they say to her, do not be afraid for you've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed for Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So that's the scene into which Samuel arrives in Israel. So Eli's dead. There's this great battle. They've just lost to the Philistines. The ark of God has been carried off, and there's been this pronouncement that the glory of God has departed from Israel. They're about as low as they ever could be when Samuel comes on the scene. So we have Samuel arise, uh, arriving in this context, and then as we walk into chapter 5 and and into chapter 6, we have the story of, of what happens to the Philistines as a result of taking uh, the Ark of God. Remember, they've taken the Ark of God, and they've decided they're going to set this thing up and make a mockery out of it. And, and instead of that happening, what ends up happening is they set it up, and God begins to send plagues on them. And so they begin to say, well, hot potato. You know, I don't want this thing. So they send it to another place, and the plagues follow in that place. And eventually, they, they call on some priests and say, what should we do with this thing? They say, return it to Israel. That's where it belongs. Their God is angry with you, and these things are going to continue. And so the, the Ark of the Covenant is tied up to an ox cart, and there's nobody leading it, just the ox cart, and it, uh, by divine guidance, makes its way back to Israel. And in a sense, we could say that now the glory has returned. And so we have uh, Samuel on the scene. The Ark has come back. And Samuel's a good judge. He's a good judge. He's doing a good job leading Israel. But remember that we're still in the cycle of judges. You remember what that cycle was? Linda, I know you probably have it written down. but Oh, she left. Well, good. I'm sort of glad because I wonder if anybody remembers. Do you remember what the cycle of the judges is? No? Start with, they're all ours. Relapse, right? So the people of Israel relapse into sin. Then what happens next? There you go. Retribution. Does somebody else have it written down? Retribution. Then what? Repentance. All right, so they relapse into sin. God sends judgment on them. Then they repent. And then what? Rescue. And so we're still in this cycle in Israel. When we reach 1 Samuel, they're still in the cycle of the judges. And so even though Samuel is, is doing a good job leading them and, and things are going well, we know that we can sort of feel like something's coming. So in the beginning of chapter 8, we begin to see the cycle sort of starting back up again. So if you look at chapter 8, it says, When Samuel became old, verse 1, When Samuel became old... He made his sons 
judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Look at verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So we can see already the beginning of the cycle. It's starting over again. And so now we have another relapse. The leaders, uh, uh, these two men who were raised up to be leaders, who were following after their father, have now begun to turn from God. And so we're, we're here. We're just starting again in the cycle. But this time, the cycle is, is in a sense, broken. It doesn't follow the normal uh, cycle. We don't go right back into those, those four things. Uh, this time, instead, the leaders, the, the elders of Israel intervene. And something different happens this time. Look at verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And just stop right there. Stop right there. Throughout all the years of the judges, what's been the thing that plagues Israel? What, what is it that, remember in the, in the book of Judges, we have that cycle where over and over again, they, they're rescued by God, and then on the heels of their rescue, we read the words, and Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what were they doing? They were serving the Baals and the Ashtaroths around the, the gods of the people around them. And, and, and ultimately, the sin was idolatry. In a sense, all sin ultimately is. But, but also what led to that was their sort of overwhelming desire in Israel. I don't know why it was present in them, but it was like it, they just couldn't get over the desire to be like the people around them. God told them, if you leave them here, you'll become like them. Sure enough, they left them there, and they just could not get over the desire to be around them, conforming to the ways of the people around them. And now the people make it explicit, and they actually just come right out and say it. If you look there in, in verse 5, at the end of it, where they make the requests, now appoint, appoint for us a king to judge us. And what do they put on the heels of it? Like all the nations. We want to be like the people around us. Give us a king so we can become like the people around us. You know, there's a a real lesson, we read through this and, and we see what ended up happening to them on, on, the, on the heels of this and what this request led to in their history and, and all the struggles that it led to for them. There's a real lesson for us to be learned about the disease and the danger of conformity to the culture around you or the desire to conform to the culture around you. And I think it's a very real danger for God's people at every moment in history. This desire to conform. I think that it's a danger for us now more than ever. I mean, I, I do want to say something, and I don't want to linger here because I, I really do want to pay attention to the time. But I do want to say something about conformity and because I, I think that sometimes we misunderstand what conformity is. 
And sometimes we accuse the church and other Christians and other churches and pastors and other people of conforming to the culture when I don't think that's what's really happening. I think that at the heart of conformity, sinful conformity, is the desire to be like the world. Is the desire to be how they are. That's exactly what Israel's problem was, wasn't it? It was a desire to be like they are. Now, sometimes we'll take things like um, uh, the way that we dress in church, for instance. Or I could list a bunch of things, but I feel like we'll just chase rabbits if I do. The music, the change in worship music over the past 30 years. And, and people oftentimes say, well, now look, we're conforming. We're doing the same thing that Israel did. We're conforming. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what that is. I think it can be what that is, but I think many times we're just being the people that we are. And think about this for a minute. Uh, if, if there was just a way to be Christian, a way to dress as a Christian, a way to sing as a Christian, a way to talk as a Christian, then wouldn't we find that across every culture and not just isolated to our own? You get what I'm saying? But why do we go to Africa and find that their music is different than our music? They're just being who they are, right? In the same way that we're being who we are in our culture. So I, I just want to say without chasing a rabbit or confusing or muddying the waters that I, I don't want us to always to say if, if we do anything that looks or resembles or looks like or resembles anything out there beyond these walls, that's conformity and that's sin. I don't think that's always true. I think that the heart of conformity is the desire to be like the world. Once that enters in, that's sinful conformity that God judges. So, that, so they want to be like the people. They want to be like the nations around them. And look at Samuel's attitude in verse 6. It says, The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Now, why would Samuel be displeased about this request? Because on the surface, I think it sort of makes sense. Right. Right. There's warnings about it. But to them, the heart of the, the, the they, they want to be like the other people around them. But there's a part of it, isn't there, that we would say, well, it may make sense to have a king. The, judge, the book of Judges ends with a foreshadowing of this whole issue. The last verse in the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, Don, you hit it right on the head. They didn't need a human king. God was meant to be their king. And when, at the end of the book of Judges, we say that there was no king in Israel, it's not that they just were missing a human king. They just weren't bowing the knee to any king. They were doing whatever they wanted. And the reason that, God, that Samuel was so displeased is because he understood that Israel was meant to be a special kind of people. They weren't meant to be a democracy or any other type of, you know, you name it. They weren't meant to be any other type of government system. They were meant to be something special. They were meant to be a theocracy where God was their king. He was their leader. And so he understood that. But look in verse 7. It says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me 
from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, and so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Sometimes the most or the harshest judgment that God can inflict on us is to just give us exactly what we want. You know, it doesn't always feel like judgment when something bad is getting ready to happen to us. Sometimes it feels like, finally, this is exactly what I want. How many of you ever can look back in your life and think of a time where you just wanted this thing so bad and then you got it and you realized that that was the worst thing that ever could have happened to you. And so God is finally going to just say, okay, if that's what they want, then let them have it. They can have all that they've asked for. And then he goes on to give them warnings, and we won't get bogged down there. Uh, David mentioned it, but he once again gives them warnings about what would happen if there was a king in Israel. And he talks about the fact that he's going to draft your young men and into the... Uh, armies of Israel. They're going to become laborers for the king. The women are going to serve the king. They'll be forced labor. They'll become slaves to him. He'll take your oxen and your donkey and he'll make them work for them. And basically he was going to oppress you. Eventually he's going to oppress you. Look in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. In spite of all the warnings, they, they wouldn't listen. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And here it is again, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. I mean, it's really strange, isn't it, as you read it? Because they're, they're just talking about the way it was meant to be with God, right? I mean, give us a king who will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you remember when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and they stood beside the sea and there they were and you can imagine that they're celebrating and, and they're so happy to be gone from that place of oppression and then suddenly they notice there's dust rising up from the direction they just came and then they come to realize that here's the army of Pharaoh coming out to get them and so they begin to wail and cry and oh, woe is me and and we're going we're gonna to all be destroyed. And God talks to Moses and tells Moses to tell them what? Do you remember? Tell them to stand still. And I will fight their battle for them. I mean, this was the history of Israel. They were meant to serve a king who would go out before them, who would fight their battles, and who could always give them victory. But instead they say, no, give us another king. Give us someone else. That we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and give them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to their city. And so we're at the edge of, the, of seeing the first king, the first human king, come to power in Israel, and, and you know the, who that would be, Saul, and we'll deal with him a little bit 
next time where we start to deal with the kings of Israel. Today was just about getting us to the monarchy and how we arrived there. But I do want to try each time we have these lessons to, to, to try to leave you with some principles, not just some history, but some principles that help us to understand our relationship to God better and who he is. And, and so when we think about this, the desire to have a king, we've already talked about the sin of conformity, wanting to be like the world. And we know that that's not what God calls us to. We're supposed to be a people set aside to pursue him and, and, and be a different type of people. But here we have God answering the response and the request for a king. Always remember this. The request for a king was sinful. It was rebellious. In fact, it was maybe the most egregious type of rebellion because not only did they do something sinful, but they essentially looked God in the face and said, we'd rather not follow you anymore. Give us somebody else to follow. This is a sinful act. And here we're reminded of something really important about God. We talked about last week at the end of the book of Judges about the truth that God never forsakes his people. And he doesn't here either. He doesn't forsake his people, although they, they will suffer for the request. But here we're re- reminded that God can use anything for his good. Remember this. God raises up a king for them because they've asked for it in their own sinful rebellion God allows them to have a king, and he raises one up from the tribe of Benjamin, one who wouldn't be a, a good king. He was strong. He was, he was the world's king, right? He was a big guy. He looked the part, big muscles, square jaw. You know, he's ready to lead. They all wanted to follow him, and God raises up a king, but he, he wasn't a good king. But eventually, God would raise up another king. He would raise up a king who was a a king after his own heart. And from that king, eventually, from that lineage, would come another king from the tribe of Judah named Jesus, who would redeem all of his people from their sins. And so here I think we have an example, a big example, of the truth that God does indeed work all things together for good. Even when we try to disrupt and dismantle what God is doing, even in our sin, when we go as far off the tracks as we possibly can, we know that what Paul said in Romans 8.28 is in fact true. God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God takes the request for a king, turns it into a vehicle of redemption for his people. And so we arrive at the monarchy here. We're going to stop on perfectly on time. We'll pick up next week and start looking at the kings.